0: Hello, and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Selena Fisk to discuss storytelling and data informed education. Selena is a data storyteller and researcher with a background in education who now works with the corporate sector to develop data informed strategies. She is also the author of a number of books, including I'm Not a Numbers Person, How to Make Good Decisions in a Data-Rich World, and for Schools, Data-Informed Learners, Engaging Students in Their Data Story. Selena, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Genevieve. Data science is only useful if it can be used to create value. And one way that value can be created is by using data to influence decision-making. Yet to influence decisions, data scientists need to be able to effectively communicate the outcomes of their work, which is something that many struggle with. This is because effective data science communication isn't just about rattling off a seemingly endless list of numbers or statistics and expecting your end users to piece them all together. It's about using those numbers to tell a story. And today we're going to be looking at how you can go about doing that. Storytelling is something we often associate with our time at school. So it seems appropriate that someone who started off as a teacher would end up becoming a data storyteller. So, Selena, to begin with, can you tell us a bit about your journey from teacher to data storyteller?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So I was trained as a physical education and math secondary teacher which feels like a lifetime ago now and I worked in schools in Brisbane in Queensland and in London in the United Kingdom for about 16 years and I've always loved numbers I've you know loved sport I used to be a head of physical education when I was teaching in the UK which again feels like an absolute lifetime ago. But what I started to see in my career, particularly teaching in the UK, was real accountability for teachers around student results and outcomes. And teachers started to be largely kind of held responsible for the outcomes that young people were achieving or not achieving. And as a middle leader in that context, I had a pass rate, if you like, for my senior subjects that was an annual metric by which you know, my success was measured, my value was measured. If I applied for a job, it was something that I shared in my application letter. And I guess what I, I I realized while I was in it, that it was pretty horrendous use of data, particularly when we're dealing with teenagers. And there were certainly some things that I would never, ever want to replicate. And I definitely don't encourage companies now to go down the path of doing, but at the same time, what I could see was that it actually really helped me with the work that I was doing and I could be more tailored and targeted and specific in my response to my kids. I could have really great conversations with them as data-informed learners when they had a better understanding of their strengths, their gaps, and then what they could kind of do next. So I kind of had these, this tension between these two perspectives of how not to do it, but the value the value of being able to actually have really good data and evidence on our work So when I moved back to Australia, I continued teaching and that was when I completed my doctorate. So I completed an EDD, which is a a professional doctorate in education. And I started to do roles in Australia. And increasingly, as we know, data has just increased exponentially in different organisations and schools are no different to that over the last kind of 10 to 15 years. And so I finished my doctorate. I wrote a couple of books. I was still teaching full-time and then decided to kind of jump out of teaching full-time and into self-employed data storytelling life at the beginning of 2020. So I've been, yeah, working for myself since then and absolutely loving every minute of it.
0: That's fantastic to hear. I think it was very interesting when you were telling me your story just then, how you were being judged based on statistics But as a maths teacher, you would also have a lot of insight into how those statistics were calculated. One thing I've found from speaking to other teachers in schools where they're making use of data to guide how the school works, it's often the maths teachers who are at the forefront of leading the school towards a more data-focused way of doing things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I and it's true, I think, in any organization. So I've since branched out. And now I work with a lot of people in different fields, you know, whether it's healthcare and real estate, and I work with CIOs occasionally and CTOs. And there's so many different pathways and, and careers where data is important. And often... It is true that it's the MATSI people in any of those organizations that are often, they're the ones that often have more confidence to talk about the numbers. They have a little bit more understanding, as you say, of some of the statistical methods or models and the way that things are calculated so they can speak with a little bit more confidence. But the problem is I find that they're the minority and or they're in a data science or business intelligence role already and so they're not in the rest of the organization so it's a little tongue in cheek you know you mentioned one of my books is called i'm not a numbers person it's tongue in cheek but that's actually what people say to me all the time they're like selena i get it i get that i need to be able to use numbers but i'm just not a numbers person so there is a real gap between the skill in the skill and confidence that some people have got but the but between their skill and confidence and the expectations on them to actually be able to engage with the data
0: You've worked with both schools and with corporate clients. In your experience, how do the schools stack up compared to the corporates with regard to how well they're using their data?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I assumed when I first started out in this work that this was a problem that was only being faced by educators. And then the more that I started to work with other people and friends and other colleagues, and and then I would work with people where they'd come and say, oh, my partner works in this industry and, and they're actually facing a really similar challenge. I guess that was what gave me the confidence to go, okay, this is actually bigger than schools. And what I'm hearing and what I see every single day in the work that I do is actually, it's the same problems, it's the same challenges, it's skill, it's finding time to build capacity, it's having the right structures, it's having, you know, breaking down those silos around who's got access to which data, how is it being used, what are the expectations, and so it's hard to kind of say whether anyone is better or worse than the other, because obviously within every sector, there are companies and there are schools that are absolutely nailing this and flourishing. And there are some who are coming in at the ground level and just pretty new to the journey. So, but yeah, really, really similar across industries. And just, I guess the constant thing that I hear everywhere I go is I've got so much data, I just don't know how to use it.
0: That's what I hear with a lot of organisations. They've got buckets and buckets of data. It's just not in a a format that they can use. Yeah. I remember one organization telling me we've got however many terabytes of data, but none of it was actually accessible by anyone who could do anything with it.
1: Yeah. And then the flip of that is, you know, I then push back to people that say that to me and I just say, well, why are you collecting it? Now, if it's not actually leading to change, if you're not tracking anything very effectively, why are we doing it? Like Let's actually do more action with less data and let's get off this hamster wheel of just collecting more and more and more and more and thinking that's the solution when actually we need to scale it back and just be smarter about what we collect and how we enact the change in our teams and with our people.
0: One of the things I wanted to focus on in this episode was data storytelling, as this is one of those phrases that seems to have emerged out of nowhere about five or so years ago. I think the first time I heard it was, I had a manager at the time, and she announced that she was planning on undertaking training on data storytelling. And I don't think she ended up doing it, but (laughs) I remember thinking, huh, what on earth are you talking about? I just didn't understand it, and I didn't know where it would come from. Since then, I've read some books on the topic, and a lot of those seem to focus very heavily on data visualisation. Hmm. Is data storytelling just another term to describe data visualisation?
1: I don't conceptualise it like that. Some people do. I see data visualisation as a really key part that contributes to the data storytelling, but it's not the same. So for me, I actually talk about three main pieces when it comes to the use of data. The first is data literacy. And for me, that is understanding the number itself and the metrics and some of those things we were talking about before around how things are calculated or generated, but also having an understanding of what is high, what's low, what we're happy with as a company or as a team, or what's potentially a bit of a red flag. So just having an understanding purely of the metrics. The second piece for me is the data visualization, because we need really good visualizations that reduce the cognitive load for people in terms of using and analyzing the data what we don't want is people trawling through spreadsheets of raw data. Like that's nobody's. Well, that's not my idea of fun anyway. There would you'd be hard pressed to find many people who enjoy doing that type of work. So visualizations are really powerful because they can put millions of data points into some pretty spectacular visualizations and and representations of this of that information. I keep it separate from data storytelling in these three circles or areas that I talk about because. In the work I do, I see that there's also a lot of assumptions made about people's ability to read and understand the visualizations. So I think we've got a key, you know, if we're we're good with numbers, we're good with data. I think we've actually just got to almost check ourselves a little and remember that actually sometimes the audience that we're working with don't actually know how to read that box and whisker plot or a scatter plot actually doesn't have... It's not super clear to somebody immediately that a scatter plot allows you to compare two different variables. And, you know, I was talking with somebody yesterday who was saying they put a trend line in a scatter plot in Excel. And just because they could generate a trend line, they said, oh, well, there's a correlation there. And so even having people understand the strength of a correlation, like we actually need to do a fair bit of work around building capacity and just the visualization piece. So we need good data literacy. We need great visualizations and and good skills to be able to read and interpret it. And we tap into those skills when we engage in data storytelling. And I really like, and I'm sure this has been one of the storytelling books you've read, Brent Dyke's book called Effective Data Storytelling. And he's based in America and he's worked with a lot of major companies like Amazon and Sony and Nike and that type of thing. And he says that The components of an effective data story, there's three main things and none of them are probably surprising, but one is key data and insights. What are those kind of main messages that you want to share? What visuals are included in the storytelling? So, you know, what are those punchy visualizations that are really going to convey meaning and convey, I guess, the message of what you actually want to share with your audience? And the final one's the narrative. So how do you weave the narrative of humans? into that data and the visualizations to hopefully motivate the audience to lead change or do something with that information. I love his model, I love the kind of the overlap of those three things and he's got a Venn diagram which is pretty cool. I guess what I do when I the people I work with are often actually not presenting a data story to other people. They're sitting in an office or with a team and they're talking about the data And so the way I think about data storytelling is actually getting people to the point of thinking of two questions. And those questions are, what are the trends and insights in the data that I can see? And then the second question is, what do I do about it? And so again, I think there's some assumptions that are made around people's ability to actually identify trends and insights. So there's some work around that. And there's sometimes some fear around doing something with it and acting on it. But as I say, I see, I conceptualise it as visualisation being a really key part of it, but it's actually not the storytelling. The storytelling is the people, it's answering the questions, it's thinking about actions.
0: So what I'm hearing from what you just said is that there's a bad way to do data storytelling, which is basically you print off a PowerPoint slide deck that's got 2 million graphs in it Mm -hmm. and you just go to a board meeting and show senior management what all those graphs are and just expect them to draw conclusions because, I don't know, this bar in the histogram is bigger than this bar or something like that. Whereas the good way is to have some point that you're trying to make. So these are the insights that I've drawn from the data and this is what you should do as a consequence of that. And so that incorporates the people understanding what everything means good data visualizations and good communication by identifying those insights and the so what
1: yeah absolutely and and so the person who's engaging in data storytelling to an audience absolutely you've got some really key decisions to make around what are, what is the most important trends and insights that you need to communicate and then what are the best visualizations in order to do that And then what are the best stories that you can share that can really emphasize the urgency or the importance of doing something with that information? Sometimes we are just sharing a data story and I guess it kind of comes back to the purpose of the data story that we're telling to others. Sometimes we might be telling them something because we want them to know and it is informing them. And so occasionally what it might be, say, if you're presenting to a board, You run your presentation and then there might be questions at the end. More often, what I see data storytelling uh, or where I see data storytelling playing out is where a leader or or a middle manager is presenting some of that data to their team or to people that they work with. And wherever possible, whichever scenario you're using these skills in, I think, We can absolutely say what we noticed. We can absolutely say what our recommendations could be about what to do with the information. But actually, real buy-in from our people comes when we ask them. And what we we know about insights, so if I was to tell you a data story right now, the insights that I would choose are completely biased by my background, perspective, you know, my upbringing, all of the biases, conscious and unconscious that we know of, they're all impacting what I see in that data set and therefore what I would share with you. So actually there's real power in saying these are the things that I've seen and these are the things that I think are most powerful or important. What do you see? What questions do you have? What do you want to know more about? And and actually having, again, this comes back to that confidence piece. You need people who are confident enough to say, let's actually have a conversation about this and be happy with people asking you questions that you might not know the answer to right there. But that's actually far more powerful. And in the same way, when we think about actions, my recommended actions to you, Genevieve, for example, so say we look at your metrics for the podcast, I can recommend things to you none of them might be actually useful because I don't know your context all that well. So again, we have to just walk really gently and humbly with it and say, well, these are some of the things that I think might be possible, but what do you think is possible? What actions could you take? What, what's coming up for you? And really, wherever possible, promoting that idea of it being a dialogue and a conversation rather than just a one-way transmission of information from me to a group of people.
0: You get much resistance from putting forward that idea that it is a dialogue rather than a one-way conversation?
1: I don't, I wouldn't say I get resistance. I I get fear because there's people that it's the what if, you know, I'm meant to be the person with the authority and I'm meant to be the one who knows everything. What if I get asked something that I can't answer? and, And am I going to look silly in front of other people? To be honest, I've never really had issues or resistance in terms of having the conversation because I think people realise that they've sat through those data stories before and they've been spoken at and there's probably times that they wanted to add something or say, actually, I don't see it like that. I saw this or I thought this was really important or could we do this instead? And I think maybe because people have actually sat through some pretty poor examples of data storytelling, they're pretty open to the idea of it, of encouraging the dialogue.
0: With regard to the people that you train, Do you find people who have more of a numbers background harder to train in data storytelling than people who have less of a numbers background?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Do you know, I think this really goes back to primary school, right? Like we go through school and we're a math science person or we're an English humanities person and people tend to stay in their lane. And it's really interesting how they identify as adults And even the influence of our parents when we're growing up as to whether or not we're good with numbers. In saying that, I've had real success with both types, you know, with both groups, and I've had real resistance sometimes from both groups who don't think they need a bit of the other thing. <laughs> they they're, they're hardcore on the narrative and the anecdotal data, and they don't think they need the numbers, or they're so deep in the numbers that they get frustrated that people don't understand why just the numbers alone can work. So it's an interesting space to work in because it's actually trying to bring those two things together and say, actually, we're not in one lane or the other. We're we're running the same. We're running the race together. Like we're we're all in the and we're we're actually trying to trying to achieve the same things for me you know th- this is always about humans like i don't work in technical industries where if there's an alert a data alert it's literally a safety issue and and there's very clear procedures about what needs to happen and what valves need to shut like you know sometimes there are things where if there's a reading that's too high it just needs to get shut off like I get that that's not the industries that I work in so the industries I work in are often human centric and so I really lead with this is about people how do we think about how we serve them better like ultimately we're doing the jobs we're doing because we have often a shared purpose and we actually want to make a difference and we want to feel like we've been successful and achieved good outcomes for other people. So the more we can return to that, I think I don't really get people arguing as to why they wouldn't include narratives or numbers, depending on which side, which lane they're in.
0: Okay. That's interesting. One thing I've always found when I've worked with a lot of numbers, people, they... They often drop the ball at the last minute because they enjoy doing the numbers so much, but they absolutely despise the whole writing up their analysis, preparing the PowerPoint deck that they have to do, and all that. So they've done this absolutely brilliant analysis, and then they do this PowerPoint deck that looks like it was put together in two seconds, and then so they can get back onto the analysis.
1: I get that. I get that. That absolutely happens. But at the same time, you've got people on the other side who, you know, I've had people say to me, Selena, I've done this work for 20 years. It's worked for me up until now. I've had great results. Why would I change? And so they're really hard to get to a point where they're looking at data and starting to think about presenting even, you know, performance of their department or their team back using numbers and using metrics if it's just never been in their wheelhouse. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely a challenge. I reckon it's, yeah, I reckon people face it on both sides.
0: Another buzzword that's emerged in recent years is data-driven. Yes. Every organisation wants to be data-driven because, I don't know, it looks good in the annual report. Mm -hmm. Yet in your work you shy away from using this term. For example, you wrote a book called Data-Informed Learners, not Data-Driven Learners. Yep. What's the difference between being data informed and being data driven?
1: Yeah, look, we could spend a whole podcast just talking about this. I'm really passionate about it. And the more people dig their heels in and push back against it to me, the harder I dig in and push back. I just, for me, data driven was the context that I worked in in the UK. There was, it was so focused on just the metrics. Nobody cared about the humans. It was the number was attached to a human. But all motivation, the reason why people were doing all the things that they were doing was purely just to hit a mark. It was to hit a target. It was to beat last year's number. It wasn't actually about improving what was happening for young people. And I guess I see that really data-driven context playing out in some industries. But for me, data-informed is where we take the numbers and the metrics and we absolutely value that quantitative information But we also take into consideration some of the context that sits around the dynamics of the organization, some of the other qualitative information and demographics or geography or any of those other bits of qualitative data that are really helpful for us to actually understand what's going on with the team, with the product, whatever it might be. And at the same time, I think what we also want to take into consideration is people's previous experience because if all we're saying is we're using the data to drive the decisions that we make, like I just think it's like at what point are we saying we actually value the experience that people bring and the experiences that they've had in this market or in a previous experience or in a previous company that's similar to us? And I just think the language around data-driven can be quite exclusive of that. So for me, being informed by the data is absolutely the metrics. It's the qualitative context information and it's let's tap into what people know and what they believe is going to work in this context. And I think if we're leading an organisation and we're going to people that, for argument's sake, are largely not numbers people, And we go to them and say, right, in our strategic plan, we've decided that we're going to be data-driven for the next five years and this is going to be our focus. That's a really hard sell as a leader to convince people who are maybe very new and just dipping their toes in the water of using numbers to say we're driven by them. It's a really big jump. So informed is definitely softer language. So it's an easier sell. It absolutely... I think, has more focus on people and humans and the and the things that are happening within the systems. And I think it's a lot more respectful of the experience that we bring when we're making these decisions and thinking about what we do next with the numbers.
0: A few seconds ago, you said there are some industries that are very data driven. What sprang to mind for me was the tech industry. Is that one of the industries you're thinking of?
1: Yeah, there's to be honest, it's probably pockets within. So there are pockets in Expedia, for example, that are really data driven. There are pockets in Expedia that would say that they're not particularly data driven. So it's probably not even as simple as saying an entire industry. So one of the one of the ones that surprised me, I was asked to do a keynote at a, a conference a few years ago, and it was from real. It was for real estate agents, and I actually assumed that real estate agents would be really good with numbers and would be great data storytellers because we hear about median house price. We you know I monthly I get a suburb report from a local real estate agent that's full of graphs and numbers. And and so it, it's it's hard to say. There's certainly pockets that do it well and then there's others where yeah it just kind of falls down. So I think there's kind of a lot of gaps everywhere, unfortunately or well, fortunately for me who loves doing this type of work. A couple of months
0: back, I got one of those, you know, the calls you get from the real estate agents you know, every three to six months saying, are you looking to buy, sell your house? And are you looking to buy a house? You know, the standard ones. And I wasn't, but I immediately started asking the real estate agent all those sorts of questions like, oh, how do you use data? And where do you get your data from? And the poor guy, I don't think he knew how to answer the questions, <laughs> but he's like, uh, we don't use data at all. We just call people and do our yep. thing
1: yeah and the report gets spat out and you know they drop it at your house or they put it in an email and um yeah so it's interesting that while they might be confident in some types of data they're not in others a similar thing actually happened to me in healthcare. like I uh, I assume because every doctor and specialist that I go to is great right they're looking at data they're making decisions looking at blood test results all of that and I was asked to work with some people in the healthcare industry, but they were all running their own medical practices. So for them, they're really good with patient data one-on-one, but they were saying from a HR financial perspective from the entire practice, they're like, where do we start? Like we, we kind of are numbers people and we understand how you can use data to inform your decisions. But at this level with these types of data, we got no idea. So yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. The
0: other one I find fascinating is, you know how there's a lot of statistics in psychology. Mm. I have my PhD in statistics and every time I've spoken to a psychologist since, the first thing they say to me is, oh, I had to do statistics as part of my psychology degree, but I really sucked at it. I'm really good at the you know, one-on-one with people type thing, but mm-hmm. I just can't handle the statistics.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting actually, totally off the topic of this podcast, but about three years ago in Queensland, our year 11 and 12 subjects, our senior subject selection changed in Queensland secondary schools and psychology was never a subject that was offered in senior school and it was brought in. And the problem that we had in Queensland was that we had this gap of, we just didn't have people that had been trained as psychology teachers and you're spot on. What we had was we had all these humanities teachers saying, oh, well, we can teach psychology. And then they looked at the syllabus and there's all this stats in it. So then the science teachers were saying, oh, well, we could pick up psychology because we can teach the stats. And then they're like, but I can't, how do I do the other thing? (laughs) How How do I, if I'm a science teacher, how do I teach the humanities part? And humanities teachers are like, I don't know any of the numbers part. So yeah, it's really fascinating, as you say, just that merger. And that's actually a really good example of where they are brought together.
0: An example of the extreme end where you're focusing on the data is a few years ago, I was reading a book about the early days of Google, where apparently senior management insisted that every decision be backed by data. So it was, you know, do we have this shade of red for this button instead of this shade of red? And I suspect that you're getting into just spurious results yeah, with some of those things.
1: Absolutely. And that's that whole A B testing, you know, running, rolling out to tens or hundreds of thousands of people, a couple of different. Marketing options and seeing which ones get clicked on more than others. I don't really kind of go down that track because it just doesn't interest me all that much. But when you were talking, I was thinking about like, you know, Jeff Bezos and one of the quotes I use of his is he basically says, Yep, I always get all the data, but at the end of the day, I make my decisions from the heart. And he said, if he had just looked at the data around Amazon Prime, the data was actually indicating that that type of model would never work. And he went, no, I actually think that the market's shifting and this is potentially something new that people would really kind of buy into and appreciate. And so he, it was a risk, obviously, big financial risk, and he was obviously in a financial position to be able to do it. But we see how Amazon Prime has really kicked off. So it's a good example of actually he saw the data and then decided to do something different and has still been really successful.
0: There's a XKCD comic that I saw I don't know, a couple of years ago, and you know how when you've got your p-value, you know, your usual cutoff is five percent. So mm-hmm. that means that you know one out of twenty should be successful if you're just doing it randomly. And it was the stick figure in the comic. They're doing some tests to see does eating this different this color jelly bean influence I don't know, let's say exam results. Yeah, and they did twenty tests. And one of them, it was statistically significant. So, yeah, so we'll go with the green jelly beans.
1: Yep, absolutely. And that's one of the issues, right? With with people who actually have a stats background, they can pick errors like that, and that's the the risk. I think in data storytelling, that we need to be really careful of. And and obviously, it, you would like to think that people aren't doing it deliberately. But we've really got to make sure that we're trying to be as objective as possible and not just cherry picking the one jelly bean going, oh, yeah, one in five, that worked. This is statistically significant. And, you know, I, I feel like I've been listening to a lot of different stats books at the moment on Audible and one they seem to all mention at the moment causation versus correlation. And correlation doesn't actually mean causation. And I think it's fascinating that that's actually coming up in all of these books that I'm listening to but it's actually really important just because something is correlated and it's performing in a similar way as something else doesn't actually mean that one causes the other. And there's a lot of like, there's some really funny websites online that look at correlated variables and how they don't cause, they don't lead to causation. So one I mentioned in my book is like, I think it's like the number of movies that Nicolas Cage was in in a year versus the number of deaths from drowning in swimming pools. And it's like, they're correlated. One is not causing the other. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but it's really important that people at least understand that, yeah, that they're, they're not the same thing.
0: The other thing that's interesting with that's one of the things that I teach, I use that website, you got that Nicholas Cage example from, I use some other examples from that website, but another example I found, so that's spurious correlation that you're getting with Nicholas Cage and the drownings, but you can also have two variables are correlated because they're both being... Caused by the same variable, even though one doesn't cause the other. So, the example that I give is the murder rate in New York is correlated with sales of ice cream in New York. Yeah, right. One does not cause the other, but so both are caused by right. temperature. So, when it's hotter, people get more angry, frustrated, and are more likely to go out and kill someone. Wow. And they're also, if they don't go out and kill someone, they go out and get an ice cream.
1: Yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. That's a really good example. I haven't heard that one before. When you've got these data informed
0: organizations, so you gave the example of Amazon, but most people aren't going to be working for an Amazon. What does a data informed organization look like at the smaller scale?
1: Yeah. I, I think one of the things that they do is they they've just got they've got a plan, to be honest. And it sounds pretty boring and maybe elementary, but organizations that are doing this really well, I can walk into them and say, what data are you collecting? What matters to you? How is it used? And they can talk me through that from a leadership level, an exec level, a middle management level, how that looks for different teams in their organizations, and then even for an individual employee. So in a perfect world, even even at an employee level, they would be able to say, you know, for me, these are some of the metrics that I keep an eye on. This is how I do it. And these are the things that I'm looking for. And then what it would do, like, these are some of the kind of key actions or things that I would think about, or I'd take it to somebody and we'd have a conversation about what to do. That clarity doesn't exist in many of the places that I go and work. Obviously, you know, if, if companies feel like they're data informed and they're doing pretty well that they're not phoning me, (laughs) Um, which is fair enough. So it's a bit of confirmation bias in my little world, but yeah, that it's, it's actually just the lack of clarity. And when, where I see it done really well, it's there is reference to evidence informed and decision and data informed decision-making in strategic plans that filters into annual improvement plans. It filters into annual plans for teams within the organization. It filters into even individual people's professional learning plans and goals for the year. And so there's a real theme all the way through of, you know, even as an, an individual employee, I want to go and do this training in this area because... This is a gap for me. And this is how I know it's a gap. You know, this is the data that's actually telling me that I I should potentially go and work on this thing or try and build skill or increase my capacity. So yeah, it's kind of everywhere. At the same time, I always say data is not the destination. I see people who write in their strategic plan things like, you know, we are going to be data-driven organization or data-informed, whichever way they want to describe it. That's actually not the end goal. Like the end goal is actually about what are you doing for people? Who are your clients? Who are you aiming to serve. Rewrite your strategic plans. So evidence and data is a part of the description, but actually the focus is on the people and and the impact that you're having, but you're just using data and evidence to support the decision making that's getting you to that point. So
0: And actually a good example of that is I used to work for WorkSafe, which is the works compensation organization in Victoria. And Obviously, their goal is to minimise the cost of providing workers' compensation to people. Yeah. But their strategic goal was we want to help more Victorians get home from work safely. Gold. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a really good example because that's actually, they're not just doing it to reduce costs if they are. I wouldn't want to work with them, but, you know, and I get that some companies are completely profit driven, but most have an actual core purpose and that purpose is in humans. So I think it's a really cool example.
0: And the fact was working there, people really did believe that it wasn't about the money. You don't go to work for a government insurer to get rich. You go because you have some sort of social purpose in going there.
1: Yeah. 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 You want people to be safer when they go to work. You want them to be able to access help if and when they need it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Before you started working with corporates, you're working with a lot of schools. And I'm actually very interested in learning a bit more about that. We've talked about what an organisation in general looks like when they're data informed. But what would that look like if it was a school? And how is data being used to inform learning and improve educational outputs?
1: yeah it's an interesting one because there's a lot of what we've said already and talked about already that as i say it's exactly the same for schools. so schools that are doing this well have those data plans they have clarity they have those strategic plans linked to annual improvement plans and all of that i think you know for me the whole reason i went down this path was the power that i saw using that data with kids had on my practice and had on them and so teachers who are doing this really well, what they're doing is they're able to look at trends for their learners, like in terms of learning analytics. So that's a main one, you know, so in, we can collect data on formative assessment tasks, like activities that are done in the classroom. We can have data from standardized assessments in literacy and numeracy. And the further we dig into that data, what we can start to see is some really clear trends For individual students, we can see trends for small groups of kids or a whole class or a whole cohort, could even be the whole school. And then it enables educators to actually be responsive to that. So, for example, if I'm teaching year five English and I can see that in a standardised assessment that my kids have really struggled with cohesion the most, then as a teacher I can go, okay, well, more so than me just knowing that my kids need to get better at writing, which is so big and there's so much to it. I can actually deliberately design activities to build their understanding of what cohesion looks like and how to actually embed cohesive devices in their writing. Again, you know, it's not about then the goal. Well, the reason we do that is not to then just get better grades the next time they do a standardized assessment. It means that if kids can write more cohesively, then they're going to be more able to communicate and convey what they think. You know, we think when kids go out and start applying for jobs and writing emails and job applications and that type of thing we actually want them to be able to convey meaning in a way that's cohesive and not clunky and disjointed. So it's actually about kind of those life or the big picture skills. And so a teacher with some of that learning analytics data can become really kind of fine-tuned around their response, their teaching response to what that young person needs to move them forward. At the same time, and a lot of work I do with corporates as well as schools is actually using the data to look at growth and look at the good things that have happened, and like, how do we actually celebrate kids that have kicked some huge goals from the last time they did an assessment through to the new one? And and oftentimes when I work with people, their assumption around the use of data is that it's it's all about deficits and it's all about looking for gaps to fill. And there is that's look that's an important part of it, but it's not the only part. There is always so many good news stories in the data that we collect and that we look at, and. I just reckon we're missing a huge opportunity if we don't actually recognize those things and celebrate them, particularly with little people and young adults who are working hard and kind of making good improvements. The other thing schools are increasingly starting to do is they're going down the path of tracking student well-being. So they're asking students to respond to surveys on a semi-regular basis, just about how they're going, how ready they are to learn, maybe how well they're sleeping, well, you know, what their relationships are like with their peers, that type of thing. And, again, you know, there's an opportunity for teachers to have one-on-one follow-ups with those kids who are struggling or for whom, you know, they might self-report quite low. But then there's also, and this is true for wellbeing and for learning analytics, there's also then at a program level middle managers and middle leaders can start to say, well, actually, this whole group of people would benefit from this type of intervention. And so some schools are implementing like a a specific reading program, for example, or a specific writing schedule, or in the wellbeing context, it might be, okay, well, we're seeing that cyber safety is a real challenge for our year 10 students. So we're going to get some people to come and work with them to build their kind of resilience to that and some strategies around how to actually operate more safely online. So there's there's so many opportunities at both a program level, a school level, but then also at an individual level. And I think, you know, we've just got so many brilliant educators doing some really cool things. And by bringing some of this learning analytics in and making it accessible to them, like they're just flying with it and they can just be super responsive and give great feedback. And yeah, it's just really good. And then, you know, you can start to have those conversations with kids too, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So it's sort of like those employee pulse surveys that they give you when you're working in a big organization, but directed at the kids instead of employees.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and like in a corporate, you know, I say to schools, it's about the follow-up. You know, if I'm an employee and week in, week out, I'm doing a pulse survey and I'm struggling, I'm saying I'm struggling and nobody calls me, nobody does anything and they just keep sending me a survey. It's like, well, why would I keep doing that survey? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's what I mean. It's the same conversations.
0: <laughs> and the worst case scenario, I've heard some organisations do it this way where they tie bonuses to the results of the pulse survey. So oh. for the, the corporate bonus requires the average pulse survey satisfaction mark to be above i don't know let's say 75% so you have all the employees oh. saying we're highly satisfied with this organization because if they don't they miss out on their bonus
1: yeah right yep that that's the tail wagging the dog isn't it <laughs> yeah but that's also a really good example of you know like they say you know the minute we set a target people work out how to manipulate it and play the game. And that's a great example of that. So targets and goals are important and I absolutely value them. But at the same time, we just need to be super aware that when we attach too much meaning to it like that, like a financial bonus or an incentive, people are absolutely going to play the game and work out a way of hitting that target.
0: So there's the standardized test data and these student pulse survey data sets. Are there any other data sets? Like for example, uh, schools making use of text data?
1: text as in what what type of text do you mean
0: so school reports or you know those slips that teachers fill out that say this student was I don't know smoking behind the gym or whatever students do now vaping behind the gym probably
1: Yeah, the text-based stuff really sits in, so say, for example, schools have got systems where you've essentially got an online behavior book. So if there was an incident at school, the teacher could jump on and they would report and record that incident against the student record. And that's handy because, you know, if you have a meeting with a parent, you can just go and print all of those incidents out. I think the challenge with schools and, and with everybody, to be honest, is how do you actually tap into and harness the power of that qualitative information and the qualitative data. And so I really encourage people to have a strategy around that too because we have so much of it. We have so many notes. We have, you know, you think about a young person with, say, a disability or somebody who requires curriculum adjustments. Those young people have got notes from specialists. They've got reports from generally learning support and recommendations for teachers. They might have, they would have a pretty extensive curriculum adjustment plan which would be potentially like you're looking 10 pages or more of text and you know if you're in a in a school if you're a teacher in a school where you have maybe a quarter of your kids with that type of requirement that's a whole lot of text so Yes, schools want to use that better, and I would say all organisations want to be able to use that type of data better. But like other corporates, they don't necessarily, unless they're massive, they don't have the money for like an R&D team or an analyst, or they don't have the money to buy an In Vivo or an SPSS to actually do some thematic analysis of that qualitative information. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there for that information because it can certainly add an important part to the picture you know like and I with schools I often talk about the fact that if you're meeting with a parent of a young person who's really struggling you might be able to talk to them about the number of times they've been suspended you might be able to talk about the number of days of school they've missed in the year but actually the really rich detail of what's going wrong for them is sitting in those pastoral notes in that text-based qualitative data so yeah it's just as you know really a lot more time consuming to be able to process that information
0: so it sounds like that'd be the next step on from what the schools are now trying to do with focusing on their numeric data.
1: Yeah. Look, there's people already doing it, but not everybody. So the people who are, I guess, ahead of year or a pastoral leader. So those people who deal with those behavior issues and, and challenges, they've worked with that type of data a lot for a really long time. But yeah, I guess it's opening up what's possible to other people. And even thinking about you know, emails from parents and emails between colleagues. And and that's true in in any organization as well. How do we actually put it into a system and structure that is useful for us, but also not one that bogs us down and then just makes us do busy work for the sake of it that doesn't actually help? So, yeah, I think everybody's kind of grappling with that at the moment. And anecdotally, you know, your observations, the conversations you have, the things you see, that's still all data. It's just qualitative and it's not written down. So again, you don't want to write all that stuff down because why would you, but what's the happy medium where we actually get some good data? And I, I I know AI is only going to continue to help us build capacity around some of that text-based data just to help us really condense that time that it takes to analyze, but we're not there yet.
0: You mentioned before the idea of engaging the students in the data story. How does that work?
1: Yeah, so It's interesting because when I present on this, I often have people assume that I'm talking about high school students only, and um, that's not the case. Like I've had a lot of, you know, I've met five-year-olds that have been able to say to me what their goals are and what they're working on next, and it's been pretty powerful really. I guess the data just looks different or what I I classify as being the data different. I guess what it usually boils down to is the teacher having a one-on-one conversation with the student, And the student having a good understanding of where they're at in that subject or in the different types of assessment or the different skills or whatever it might be, and actually setting some goals around what they want to achieve and how they're going to do that. So, you know, like there there are schools that do mentoring really well and young people have mentoring conversations with a teacher and they set really specific goals and they have a good understanding of their data because they're able to access dashboards so you know a lot of schools are going down the path of having a visualization dashboard for student results and increasingly schools are actually opening that access to parents and to students so a young person or their parents at any stage in a lot of schools can go on and see how they're kind of tracking over time they can Reflect on, you know, are they performing in a similar way year on year? Have things changed? How have they changed? Where are their strengths in terms of subjects? And that looks different for every school and for every young person. But, you know, that's pretty common in secondaries. In primaries, it's probably not as quantitative. So it's things like descriptors. So I was in a prep classroom, so five year old kids um, a little while ago. And in the literacy and numeracy continuum, there are descriptors of what kids can do, right? And, and the teacher's job really is to try and progress kids up this continuum. So descriptors on that continuum include things like if you're five, one of the things you might be trying to learn is to count backwards from 10, or it might be a skip count in twos, right? And so developmentally, there's a scale at which like there are some things you have to be able to do first, you can't count backwards from 10 if you can't count up to 10. So Once the teacher kind of knows where the kid's at and what they can do, I've seen these little things on the wall in classrooms where kids have said, you know, with the teacher's help they've written, you know, my next goal is to be able to skip count in twos. My next goal is to know the letter and the sound S or whatever it might be. And so it's just different data. It's just like proficiency descriptor. And then they just make a big deal of it. Like it's really low stakes. When kids achieve it, they come up and they tick the thing off and they're proud and they high five the teacher and they have an achievement wall in class and it gets sent home to parents. And it's just that whole like, okay, so now I can count backwards from 10. What's next?
0: And you get your gold star on the thing on the wall. I'm thinking of Summer from School of Rock here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I always think about the very first data wall, if you like, that I remember as a kid, I was in year one, and it was a, um, can you tie your shoelace or your shoelaces data wall. So all of our names were up on the wall, and nobody could tie their shoelaces to begin with. And each day, we would come in and we would try and show the teacher that we could tie our shoelaces. And as people were able to do it, their name moved from this big group of people into the list of people who could now tie their shoelaces. Oh,
0: yeah. I remember
1: when I was a kid, the thing that we were
0: all tracking was who was going to lose their first tooth. Yes. (laughs) And I didn't lose any teeth until I was in grade one, and I was so jealous of the people who lost teeth when (laughs) they were in prep.
1: Isn't it funny what you remember?
0: So is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years?
1: Yeah, I think for me, there's probably two two things. The ability, if there's a dashboard, for example, that's producing reports automatically and it's being refreshed or updated daily or however often it is, I think AI has got a really important part to play in potentially flagging or directing our attention to things that are not how they would be expected to be. So when we look for, so back to, you know, half an hour ago on this podcast, when we talked about storytelling for me is what are the trends and insights and what are the actions? I think AI can potentially really help us with what are the trends and the insights. So it could potentially suggest in the same way at the moment that Microsoft Excel, you know, if you go to the analyze data, it tries to anticipate how you might want to visualize it. I actually think that being able to prompt people and draw their attention to certain elements is absolutely a key part. The second piece then for me is around automation. So how do we, if there is a threshold data point, rather than somebody having to log on a dashboard, how do we actually automate an alert back into an email? And that's kind of happening in some industries with some dashboards. There are some alerts. But what I also know in the the companies I've worked in is that oftentimes we have so many different dashboards for different sets of data and different bits all over the place. We can't be saying to people, we want you just to kind of have an eye over all of that every day. So the more we can kind of automate that and alert people to areas of concern when it comes up, I think the better. And then there's the whole predictive analysis and what's, you know, how do we use the old data to predict what's going to happen in the future? That's not amazing yet, but I think that's only going to increase and improve.
0: And what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. To be honest, I work with a lot of data scientists and CIOs and CTOs who, for whom they're doing some really great work and they're doing what they think the organisation needs. And then I go and speak with the other people and they get frustrated because they're actually not getting what they need. And oftentimes those two teams don't meet. So my biggest bit of advice would be how do you actually go and have a conversation with the people for whom you're producing these things and how do you make sure that it's actually what they need because I reckon they'll have some ideas about how to modify it and and let you know about things that you wouldn't have been able to anticipate that they would really value. And oftentimes, they're pretty small tweaks. I worked with one team where they were producing a six-page report weekly for a group of middle managers, and the middle managers were complaining about it. We got the two groups together. The, page became, the, the report became one page weekly, and the middle manager said, actually, I can action every single thing on this one piece of paper, and that's all I need. And so everyone was happy. The data scientists have less work to do, shorter reports. Yeah, the team were happier because I had actionable information.
0: So on that note, for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do?
1: Yeah, sure. Connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn, but all my information, contact details, and some of my articles and stuff are available on my website. So that's selenafisk.com and it's S-E-L-E-N-A-F-I-S-K.
0: I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today.
1: No worries at all. Thanks again for having me.
0: And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.